There's a story uh, that I heard once about a pastor who got a call from a Satanist. The pastor is sitting in his office. The secretary's already gone home for the day when the phone rings. And he picks up the receiver and, you know, says, hello. And the man on the other end asks if this is, you know, pastor so-and-so. And he says, yes. And then the man starts to introduce himself. Say, well, I want you to know that I am a Satanist. And I have been given an assignment against you. And I am, I am cursing you along with others in our, I think the word is coven or something like that. And he begins to tear into this man. And when I say curse, I don't mean just using foul language. I mean like declaring horrible things over his life. Just speaking all kinds of tragedy and, and just awful things into this guy. The pastor is pretty surprised by this, but he quickly decides what to do. What would you do in that situation? That's the question I want to ask today. That will probably never happen to you. However, what do you do when you are confronted by something that is evil? What do you do when you are confronted by something that almost feels like maybe it's otherworldly and in that sense, not in a good way? What do we do to respond to the evil forces that are out there in the world? So we are starting a, sorry, we are continuing a five-week series. It's called A Summer of Freedom. And we are talking about how God is all about freedom in our lives. The verse that we started out with today says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus came that we would be free. He did not come to control us. He did not come to manipulate us. God is not a manipulator. He is all about freedom. And so the question that we're asking in this series is how do we get free? And the piece that we're talking about today is something called deliverance. And here is what we're going to find today. Jesus has power. And so do you. Wield it or yield it. Jesus has power and so do you. And the call for us is to wield it or to yield it. Those are the only options that we see. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read a story about Jesus confronting evil forces. This is Luke 11. We're going to start down in verse 14. If you're scrolling or flipping. Luke 11, verse 14. It's also up on the screen if you want to read there. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. 
while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil in itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. The first thing we see from this passage is that according to the Bible, demons are real. It's not imagined. It's not a psychotic episode that there are actual beings in this universe that are not human beings, but that are out there that are, for the most part, unseen. The Bible just says that's reality. Jesus is encountering these beings. He's talking about what happens when one leaves a person. The Bible says that there are evil spirits it often refers to as demons, and even one chief of them which is, who is called Satan, the accuser. And their desire is to control. We see this in this instance. This demon's dominating this guy. It has taken away his ability to speak. It's controlling and manipulating his life. <clears throat> the Bible talks about the devil and says that, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy And that is what their mission is towards us as people. But Jesus is the opposite of that. He is always looking to bring freedom. He is not looking to control or manipulate people. He is looking to restore them to a place of dignity and freedom. And the second thing in the Bible that we see, and maybe not necessarily in this passage, but demons only have power because people give it to them. It started way back in the beginning of creation. Adam and Eve were given this world. And when they followed the way of the serpent that it talks about in Genesis 3, they handed that authority over to the devil. They were given authority to rule over this planet, to, to, to subdue it and to cultivate it and to make it heaven on earth, essentially, was their task to bring heaven to earth originally. They gave that authority over to the devil by following his way. And that happens on an individual level now as well. This is our planet. Your body and mind are your own. But people have given, them, given power over to evil spirits in their lives by going the way of, of sin 
and the devil instead of following the way of Jesus. Here's the good news. Literally, Jesus took it back. The gospel is that God is love, that people messed up this world, and so God entered it as a baby. He became a man so that he could take the authority back as a man and dominate and conquer the forces of evil that held that authority. Jesus has already taken it back. The Bible calls him the second Adam, the one who who did it the right way. And so the devil's power now is extremely limited. It's only through deception and people yielding power over to him. And so these evil forces are not to be feared in any way. Now, just to, just to uh, illustrate this a little bit, politicians have authority because people give it to them. They don't just rise up one day and say, all right, I'm in charge, everybody listen to me, at least in a democracy. That does happen in other cultures, right, or in other countries. But generally speaking, they have authority because it's been given to them by people. It works the same way in the spiritual world. I was a teacher for a number of years. What gave me the right to send a kid to detention? It was the town that I taught in that gave the authority to that school board, who gave the authority to the principal, who hired me and gave me authority in that classroom to assign grades and send the kids to detention. Right? My authority was given. Right? It's the same way for us with spirits. Okay? Now, if this is weirding you out, and you're like, man, these people are crazy. They're talking about demons. Well, it is a little crazy. We also believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's kind of crazy too. So the whole package is a little crazy. Okay? But I just want to ask you, in your life, have you ever had something, some kind of an encounter or an interaction that you could not explain through the five senses in science? You know, a lot of times we talk about ghosts or, you know, you felt some weird, eerie sense and you couldn't explain it. The Bible has an explanation for that. It's not going to say that was just your imagination. It's going to say, no, there's real spiritual forces out there that are evil, that are looking to deceive people, even pretend that they're long-lost loved ones, right? Maybe you fooled around with a Ouija board or you went to a seance. I have no idea. But the Bible's perspective is that stuff is real and you should stay away from it. It is, it is seeking, again, the word power in ways that God has not ordained. So I think for the, most people, even though we live in a Western context that mostly dismisses this stuff, I bet you've experienced something that to you is inexplainable, that has felt dark or weird or spiritual or maybe in a positive way. But I just offer that to you to say, hey, This is what the Bible teaches. I know there's a lot of crazy stuff in there, but it may even make sense to your own experience. So here's the second thing we see in this passage. Jesus has power. Jesus has authority. He has power over every evil spirit. 
He casts out this spirit, and the people marvel. Now, there's a little bit of maybe possibly some debate about this, but I think the people marveled at this, and it specifically says that is because the Jewish exorcists could not cast out a mute spirit. Their method was, from what I understand, was to learn the name of the demon. And they believed that if you learned the name, you could use that name as almost like having authority now over that one, and you could cast it out if you learned its name. What's the problem with a mute spirit? The person can't speak, so you have no way of extracting any information from them. Right? So they were not able to deal with that spirit. It was just, sorry, buddy, you're stuck. No one can help you. Good luck with the rest of your life. Now, there's something called uh, four messianic miracles. And the idea is that back then the Jews believed that there were four miracles that the Messiah would perform, the one that was coming to, to, to rescue the people of God. And he would perform these miracles because they couldn't be performed by anyone unless they were absolutely attached to God. And this was one of them. So Jesus does something the exorcists can't do, and it's also recognized as one of the four messianic miracles that the Messiah would perform to show that he was, he was authorized specifically by God to be the Messiah. Now just, just for, as an aside, here's the other three. One was, another one was healing a person born with a certain condition. And the reason was because they believed that someone was born with something, like, you know, in this case, Jesus heals the man born blind in John uh, chapter 9. They believed it was God cursing that person for their sin or the sin of their parents. And the disciples specifically asked that question in that story. They say, who, who sinned, this man or, or his parents? And Jesus says, no, this was for the glory of God. And he heals him, right? So that was another one because they believed it was specifically from God. So only God could reverse that condition. Another one was healing someone from leprosy. They also believed leprosy was specifically inflicted by God because it would, it would render someone an outcast. So it was given to them because of some sin they had done, and they would be outcasts from the society. They wouldn't be able to enter the temple and all of that. So Jesus also heals many lepers. Another sign that he was going to be the Messiah. And the last one was raising someone from the dead after three days. So on the fourth day or after, because the belief back then was that a spirit would hover over the body for three days, and then after that it would go up you know, to, to heaven or you know, Hades or whatever, um, wherever the destiny was of that spirit. So after four days, it would be evidence that this person was able to almost like reach into heaven or to hell and bring that person back. So I just, it's just really interesting to me that in this passage, that's why I believe they're really marveling at this miracle, because it was a sign of the Messiah, and it was something that their exorcists were not able to do. And this is why also we see so much interrogation of Jesus, even in this passage. It's because they had set up rules around these miracles. That if, if someone was to perform one of these miracles, the Pharisees would send people to investigate and start to question this person to see if they were really the Messiah. And you see also in this passage, not just the questioning, but also the asking for another sign, which potentially was another one of these four miracles. Okay, A little bit of theory in here, but I think it's pretty interesting stuff. I just had to mention it. Okay, so Jesus, in this passage, the people are then accusing him. Some are questioning him, asking for another sign, but some of them are actually accusing him of doing this by the power of the devil. In other words, Jesus had more power over this person because he was tapped into a, like, a more powerful spirit. So if he's tapped into the devil... 
The devil has authority over all these smaller spirits, and that's how he's doing this miracle. And Jesus just makes the point, if a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Satan would be a fool to go around setting people free from evil spirits. That, that, that's the exact opposite of what he's trying to do. During the NBA Finals this year, uh, one of the coaches of the uh, Golden State Warriors had to take over for the head coach, Steve Kerr. Because Steve Kerr was, uh, he's, had gone through some really bad back pain, and so he wasn't able to even be on the bench and coach his team during the Finals. The guy that took over was a guy named Mike Brown. And Mike Brown used to coach for the Cleveland Cavaliers, who was who the Golden State Warriors were playing. And in fact, he was still on their payroll. So he was getting paid because they had let him go to beat their team. Now I just mention this to say, in a basketball contest, whether you are the coach or the player, you kind of have to pick a side. Mike Brown can't say, oh, well, you know, I used to coach for them, and it's just sending me some paychecks, so, you know what, I'll call a couple bad plays on our end and, you know, put in the bottom of the lineup to start the game. No. You can't do that. Right? If, if, if he has any division in himself, his team is going to tank. Okay? So I just, I just state that to illustrate the point that Jesus is making. Right? Satan is not doing the things of God. Yes, he is a deceiver, and maybe there's potential that in some ways he could do things like that to deceive, but Jesus doesn't seem to go there. He seems to just go to the fact that, are you guys nuts? This guy is free. Do you know what God is about? Do you know what he is like? Do you have any idea what the devil is like and what his will is for your life? His will is to steal, kill, and destroy, to control and manipulate you and deceive you and to see you shrivel up and die, and to hate God too, because blame him for it. God's will is the opposite. And so Jesus makes the point, if this is not the devil, then you need to admit that this is actually the finger of God. It's a reference back to Moses, when Moses has that contest with the magicians of Egypt. And they can't, they, they, they're able to imitate some of the things that Moses is doing among them, but after a while they say, we can't compete anymore. This is the finger of the supreme being of the universe. Jesus is making that same point. You guys, if this is not the devil and your people are casting devils out and you're just saying, oh, honky-dory, you need to say that this is the finger of God. And why does Jesus get to do this? It's because he has bound the strong man. Right? He compares himself to this, this strong person who is armored and it says that Jesus takes away, the stronger one takes away this guy's armor. Paul picks up this idea in Colossians. It says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Open shame by triumphing over them. John makes the same point. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Right? Jesus has beaten the strong man, not only in his victory over the devil and his temptation, but also on the cross. Ultimately, that was where the supreme victory was and his resurrection and beating death. So Jesus plunders the strong man. He takes the spoil. 1 John 3.8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
the reason the, the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews, therefore, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He came to rescue us, to share in our humanity, since we had flesh and blood, so that by his death, he might destroy him. Not even just defeat. It says, destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Can we just celebrate right now? Jesus destroyed the devil on the cross. He destroyed him. He humiliated the devil. He put him to open shame. He disarmed his power. He took away his armor. He is totally defeated. He is a defeated foe. His victory is done. His fate is sure. And his only weapon now is is deception. That's it. Now, I want to take this a little bit further. Here's this from a commentary I read this week. Whenever Jesus exercises or heals, he takes spoil from Satan's kingdom and adds it to God's own. Can I say that again? Anytime Jesus exercises or heals, he takes spoil from Satan's kingdom and adds it to God's own. Is it God's will to heal? Absolutely it is. Anytime someone is healed, God is plundering the devil. God's will is to heal. And I would go so far as to say it is always his will to heal. Why has Brianna not gotten healed? I don't know. But I know that God's will is to heal you, Brianna. God's will is healing because he is a healer. I do not submit to this. Well, this is is God's sovereign plan in some way. No, I do not see that in Jesus. I see him taking every opportunity to plunder the devil at every opportunity he had. He sees this as him taking away what has been taken from us. He is taking it back. God's will is healing. It is freedom. It is not affliction. It is not disease. He is working through his Holy Spirit to eradicate disease from this planet. He is working to bring freedom And God's kingdom is on the move. And it will continue to advance until every single enemy is put under the feet of Jesus until the last enemy to be defeated as death will be done away with. That rock that Daniel saw that struck that statue, it did not say it disappeared for a little while and then came back. It said it grew to be a mountain that filled the earth. There is no break in the victory of God's kingdom on this earth. It will continue to expand. It is the leaven that is leavening the whole dough. It is the seed that was planted that will become a tree until the birds are able to come and nest in its branches. God's kingdom will advance, and Jesus will put every enemy under his feet through the power of the Holy Spirit by his people taking ground in this world until every enemy is defeated, poverty, Disease, depression, anxiety, hatred, discord in relationships, oppression of the poor, manipulation and control, abuse by spouses. It will all end. That is what the church is doing in this world. Sorry, I didn't even finish the quote. Consequently, this... this, Guy, this person says, 
Luke can portray healing and the preaching of the gospel as integrally related activities. They are connected because the gospel is not say this prayer and then you go to heaven. The gospel is believe in Jesus and be saved, healed, and delivered and then join him in changing this world, in defeating darkness. That is what Jesus' ministry was. It was confronting darkness and getting it rid of it by love, by truth, and by power. Sorry, I've got to finish the quote again. The 72 must heal the sick and say the kingdom of God has come near you. That's the 72 that Jesus sends out. Every healing, exorcism, or raising from the dead is a loss for Satan and a gain for God. Because there's no sickness in God's kingdom. There's no death. There's no disease. It will all end. So here's the challenge, guys. We have authority then. Jesus sends the apostles out and says, all authority has been given to me. Now go under my authority. Right? Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've taught right? and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has delegated authority to us. Wield it or yield it. Jesus doesn't leave any, any room. You either gather with me, you're either, you're either gathering and plundering the enemy with me, or you're scattering. Right? We are either wielding the power that Jesus has given us over darkness, or we're just giving it to the enemy. Whether it's in our own life or the authority that we have in our sphere of influence, if we're not wielding it and taking it up as a weapon and destroying strongholds of darkness. Now, at the end of this passage, we get this crazy, weird story about this demon being in a person, being cast out, and then coming back. So I want to connect this now to all this larger theme that, that we're talking about. Jesus is talking about people in this passage that maybe get set free in some way, but refuse to put their faith in Jesus and open themselves up fully to his truth. Right? In this story, we see people that are resisting questioning and even accusing Jesus of cooperating with the devil. Ah! Jesus is like, if you don't yield to me, if you don't submit to me, if you don't put your faith in me, this is like your faith. I could cast a demon out of somebody, but if this guy does not get right with me and deal with the places where he's yielded authority to an evil spirit, they will come back. That's the problem. Whoever is freed of demons and does not decide for Jesus is simply preparing the premises for a more complete mastery by the demons. People who have been healed by Jesus but do not adhere to Jesus are a prize find for demons. We need to adhere to Jesus. That's the point. That is where freedom comes from. So we have authority. We need to wield that authority or we end up yielding it to the enemy. So this is really challenging, guys, because there's always the question of, of the whole God's will factor. Like, you know, is this God's will in my life? Do I need to just kind of, you know, oh, well, this is what happened. I think, for the most part, God is trying to tell us what God's character is like and what he wants to happen in this world, and that we are to do everything we can to fight tooth and nail to bring that to come in our world. The question's not, should I pray for this person to get healed, or... Should I believe for victory in this person's life? It is always that. And if it doesn't happen, we're not blaming God. And we're not going to blame people either. Like, well, you should have had more faith, or you, know, you, you screwed up. No. We don't always know there's a spiritual battle happening. 
And we need to grow in knowing the authority that God has given us to do that. My son got bit by a Lyme tick on Monday. My son Samuel. And this, I have a really hard time with, with, with that. One, because I think fear is an issue in my life that I need to work through. Which is, this is a great time to do it in the summer of freedom. Two, it's because we had a neighbor when we lived down the street that died from Lyme's disease. He was, a, he was a park ranger. He contracted it. They didn't catch it. And it just slowly ate away at his body until it made its way into his brain. And then he had started having all kinds of just difficulty until it, until it just shut him down. He couldn't even speak until he died. So it always freaks me out a little bit. And I, I, I totally just I gave way to fear this week in that. But I recognized it. And then I took authority over it. But here's the deal. If I don't go through now that process that we talked about last week and deal with unforgiveness, inner healing that needs to take place, or um, the last one is truth and lies, lies that I'm believing and truth that I need to believe. If I don't deal with that, I can, I can take authority over that fear, but I'm still inviting that back in. Okay, So I'm just saying... There's a foothold in my life for that. I know it. And I'm working to get the truth deep into my heart where it's not just in my head, but it's in my heart. Right? And I'm, I'm working through places where I have not forgiven people that would, that would maybe cause me to, to, to turn to fear or something like that. But this is, this is the point that I believe Jesus is making at the end of this passage. We've got to go to the deep place of forgiveness and healing and truth. Otherwise, we're still giving a foothold to the enemy. So, let's have the band come back up as we conclude. Here's the whole process, guys, if you want to know it, in just two things. We have sheets out on the information table. We handed these out last week. If you want to learn, the point of this series is for you to learn how to journal with the Lord and to get set free from anything that you might be experiencing, right? In terms of emotional wounding or other things. And if there's a physical component to it, then praying for God to heal that as well. It's as simple as this. Start writing down every day what you are feeling emotionally. We talked last week about David, and we said that real men get real. Right? Real men, it was Father's Day, that's why I'm saying men. Real men get real. They deal with the emotions inside of them because you either deal with it or they come out later in anger or something else. We, you journal and you just write down what you're feeling. Man, I got really angry at my kids right there. What was really going on? I was feeling this, I was feeling this, I was feeling this. And then secondly, it's as simple as this. God, what do you want to tell me about that? And oftentimes he'll bring up a memory, a place where you haven't forgiven someone. He'll bring up a lie that you're believing or a really difficult memory that he wants to bring healing in. Okay? There's instructions on the table about how to do that. And if you have questions, we would love to dialogue with you if you say, I'm still not getting how to do this, Brian. But Jesus, I'm just telling you that, guys, this works. I've been telling stories about how God's been doing this in me. Like, Jesus can set you free. We have power over the enemy. We do not have to fear him. So the pastor that got the phone call from the Satanist, his name, was, his name is Graham Cook. You can find this story on YouTube, uh, believe it or not, and you're, you, you can, exactly that, you can believe it or not. But if you want to search it, search Graham Cook Satanist, and there's like three or four of them that are all pretty much the same. And this is what Graham Cook did. He took out a pen and he started writing. As the guy started pronouncing curses over him, he started writing down every curse that this guy was saying. 
When the guy finished, he stopped and he said, is that all you've got? Why don't you give it another try? And so the man just laid into him with double on force, just gave it to him, cursing him about this and that. And then finally he stopped and Graham said, let me tell you something. You said that you have an assignment on me. I have an assignment on your life. And Jesus wants me to tell you he's coming to get you. The guy hangs up, slams down the phone, click. Graham Cook takes out the lift, starts breaking off every curse in the name of Jesus and then writing down the opposite blessing and receiving an opposite blessing. He said it was like a prophetic word in reverse for what this next season of my life was going to be. He burned the list. And then he says, that next few months of my ministry was like my anointing was off the charts. Months later, the phone rings. He picks it up. This guy says, hey, I don't know if you remember me. I was the Satanist that called you. Graham Cook says, hey, thank you so much. You wouldn't believe all the things that God has been doing in my ministry. I mean, I just want to thank you so much. God took all those curses and just reversed it. Thanks so much for doing that. The guy says, I just wanted to tell you what happened. I could not get that out of my head, what you said at the end of that phone call. It haunted me that Jesus was coming to get me. I started losing interest in all this different occultic practices that I was doing. It just, it just, it just started to, I just started to have this distaste. He was standing around a fire during the ceremony with all these other occult people. And guess who showed up in the fire? Jesus. And they all froze to the ground. They couldn't move. And he went around and touched each of them on their lips one by one and cast all the demons out without a word. And they all got filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. And he said, hey, I'm kind of on the run. They're after me. But I just want to let you know this is, Jesus has changed my life. Guys, we have authority. We have authority because Jesus has put it in us. His spirit is in us. We have authority. That same spirit that is in Graham Cook is in us. That's the authority. As we close, I just want to welcome you to dialogue with the Lord. Is there any places in your life where God is calling you to take authority, to wield it instead of the ways that you have been yielding it? Take out your journal. Write a little bit. Take out your phone. Dialogue with the Lord on your phone. Come up for a prayer. If we have the ministry team come up now, wield it or yield it, guys. We have authority. Jesus has won. Let's, let's wield it.